0: Thank you, gentlemen, for leading us in that time of worship. And good morning to all of you. How many of you saw the title to the message this morning? Vampire Christianity. What could go wrong, right? I don't know what picture you get in your mind when you hear the word vampire, but it's probably not vampire Christianity. We'll get to that eventually but this morning I want to begin by taking us back to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and we've been working our way uh, through these the first chapter and this morning we're going to begin the second chapter but before we get to the text I want us to think a little bit about what was Paul's purpose in writing this letter what was his goal or what was the theme of this letter and I think we find that in chapter 1 verse 10 i'm going to start reading in verse 9 god has now revealed to us his mysterious his mysterious will regarding christ which is to fulfill his own good plan and this is the plan at the right time he will bring everything together under the authority of christ everything in heaven and on earth. I think the songs that we sang this morning kind of gave us that impression, right? That someday, everything in heaven and on earth will be completely under His absolute control. There will be nothing outside of that. Paul wants us to understand that. And I find it interesting that we're studying the book of what we typically call Revelation But I think if we look at the first words of that book, the theme is, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of things that are going to happen. It's the revelation of Him and how He is working in our world and will work in that world. Last week, Todd read a quote from... And he had, I won't take the time to read that, but, you know, in Christ, of Christ, for Christ, Christ in me, Christ outside of me. The whole idea was Christ is everything. We would call that the supremacy of Christ. Paul echoes the same thing in chapter 4, verse 6 of Ephesians. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's everything. He is the alpha the omega he's the beginning of the end and the end and we're fast approaching easter and it is the greatest event in human history maybe in all history that ever existed it was it's the destruction of sin and the grave forever and paul is declaring in our text this morning, the immeasurable greatness and the power of God toward us who believe. He spent time in chapter 1 doing that and he uses words or phrases to describe the power that God has unleashed, what He has done. He used words like He has blessed us, He has chosen us, He has predestined us, He has adopted us, He has provided redemption for us, He's forgiven us, He's lavished upon us, He's granted us an eternal inheritance uh, inheritance, and He has sealed us. It's as though Paul is escorting us into our eternal mansion. He's going room by room and showing us what God has just done and provided for us. And it is glorious. And he ends the chapter, chapter 1, by saying, and God put all things under Christ's feet. And gave him to the church as head over all things. Now, the church is his body. We are his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And then in chapter two, it's as though he takes us into the backyard of that mansion, way back by the fence, near the forest. And you can see the dark forest beyond. And He walks, takes us back to that fence and He uncovers a pit. It's the pit from from where we have been rescued. And He forces us in chapter 2 in a way to look into that pit. And we see movement. It's dark. And then things become clear. It's full of vermin. It's full of decaying things and dead things and the stench is overwhelming and we just cover our mouths and have to turn away and he begins chapter 2 with these words you were dead in your transgressions." sins we stare down into that pit we recoil from what we're seeing and well we should But why does Paul do this? He started out so wonderfully in chapter 1, explaining to us all the wonderful things that God has done. Why does He make us now look into the pit? To the church in the city of Corinth. He wrote a long list of detestable things that were going on. In the church. In the community. In society. And he lists them and we don't even we don't even like reading them those verses in public why did he do that i think for us to understand and to grasp the incredible greatness of our salvation we can't do that until we understand the absolute horror of sin of our sin Paul is not saying that some of us have conducted our lives in a manner like this. He says, no, we all have, including himself. But wait. Have we all? be tempted to say, don't lump me in with them. I'm not like them. We've all read books, we've all heard stories, we've all watched movies of people who came to Christ out of a life of utter darkness, sin and despair, life wallowing in the pit. But many don't have that same kind of story. I had a friend a few years ago, and I I haven't seen him, I haven't heard a word from him in probably 25 years, but I still pray for him. I don't know if he's living or if he's not. But I remember the first time we met. I was driving the company truck to the job site in Columbus. The company had hired a new employee. We picked him up along Route 33 near Rockbridge. He's standing beside the highway. And the thing I noticed was he had a lunch bucket in one hand and a huge Bible in the other. And my first thought was, this is kind of odd. You're going to work. But it didn't take very long for us to become close friends, and he told me his story. He was raised in a Christian home, but he had other plans. And at 15 years old, he left home and headed west. The only thing he took with him was a bottle of whiskey. And as he told me his story and how he eventually came to Christ, I mentioned that I didn't have a very compelling testimony like he had. Of course, I wasn't perfect. But then he said this. He said, you can be thankful, you don't. I've thought about that for all these years since. Maybe you are one of those whose God's grace reached early in life. You didn't wallow in that pit for very long. And you can be very thankful you didn't. But I think too often we tend to downplay our sin. We just kind of think of ourselves, well, we were a little naughty. You know, we did we did some bad things, but nothing like them. That's exactly what Satan wants us to think. I wonder if we can think of our life as we're in a car and we're driving down a highway. We're just minding our own business. We're having a a great time as far as driving in a car can be. But you notice a man standing off the side of the road and he's waving his arms. And you have a decision to make. The first one might be, man, he must be on something. He's crazy. Or worse yet, he might—he wants me to stop and so he can hold me up and rob me or worse. Or maybe we come to the place where we say, you know what, maybe there's something wrong. And so we pull over. And just as we slow down and we pull over, we look ahead and we notice the bridge that we were about to cross is gone. The bridge has collapsed. And there's nothing but trouble if we continue. That man saved our life what I find interesting is we had to believe it before we could see it and so it is with following the Lord Jesus we don't see it and then believe it we don't see it until we believe it and so that's why we tell the gospel story but the fact is stories about the people who were on the bridge and went into the water, or people who careened off the end and landed up in the water, and then somehow miraculously to shore. Books are written about them. Paul gives us the cold facts about who we were or some of us still are. Dead in sin. And the fact is, we were born in sin. We were born in the bottom of that stench-filled pit. The world thinks, and I think many in the church also think, that we're, we're kind of born on neutral ground. We haven't made any decisions yet. So, it's, we're born on a neutra- in a neutral state. And it all depends on how you live your life determines where you'll end up. The bottom line is, we humans, we're basically good at heart. If we're given the right opportunities, if we're born into the right place, family or whatever, we're, we're, just, we're just pretty good people, aren't we? wonder where that idea comes from. And somehow that if our good outweighs our bad, then we're good. We're good to go. this is how the Apostle John addresses that idea if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us I don't think John agrees with that assessment that basically good all have sinned and fallen short even little miles he's a cute little guy He's the cutest thing ever. Until the next one comes along. Right? But Miles is a born sinner. We don't look at him as that way, do we? At this point in his life, though, he is innocent. He has no understanding whatsoever of what sin is. He has no understanding of any of that. He is innocent before God. He has not yet come to the awareness of sin. But he will, and we will know it, and he will as well, hopefully. When he clenches his little fists and sets his little jaw and says, either in his mind or out loud, loud, I will not, something needs to be done. He'll come to that place, warning you to, you know that. Jordan and Annabelle will guide him into an understanding of his human nature and how he must deal with that. He will need to make a choice in life. Paul says, we were dead, all of us. In verse 2 he says, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We all walked according to the course of this world. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, our desires were in tune with the values and trends of the world around us. One writer describes our condition as a dead person in a coffin. Very comfortable. Not one thought of being confined in a cold, dark place and with no way of escape. They're perfectly fine with that. But a person who is alive in that condition, it's sheer panic. and frantic to get out st. Augustine describes our sinful state as a life turned in on itself there is nothing out there that we really truly care about unless it affects and helps me it's me centered a dead person a dead person to Christ they care about nothing else outside of themselves or how they can use others to benefit themselves but for those of us who have come to Christ it's like sin should be like we are frantic to get away from it it appalls us it makes us shudder and Paul tells us that there is a ruler a ruling power a prince one who has authority It's interesting, he uses the word prince. There's only one king, but there is a prince who is subject to the authority of the king. Satan is only a prince. He has power. He has incredible power, but only as much as God the Father allows him. And it is his spirit, Satan's spirit, that is at work in his children. Those who are under his authority who are called Paul says, the sons of disobedience. And they're perfectly happy in that state. They know nothing else. So what did Paul mean when he talked about the course of this world? It's kind of the, the age, the age we're living in, the time we're living in. But the course of this world, the direction that it's heading, and the driving force behind it. Are there, is, is there a course in our current world? Is there a trend in our current world that anybody notices? I think if we're even halfway aware we knew that, we know that. Here are a couple things. and some of you, I'm sure, have heard of this. There's a Christian school in Vermont, the state of Vermont, and the girls' basketball team was in a tournament, and they forfeited that game because. On that opposing team, there was a boy who claimed he was a girl. You've heard of that. We call it transgender. I guess it's a nice way of saying it. And so the team decided, you know what, this isn't right. We don't feel comfortable with this. It's not fair, and it could be dangerous. So we will just forfeit the game and therefore exit the tournament and and we'll just go on. Or so they thought. But the reaction to that, their action, was pretty incredible. The governing sports body of that organization that put that tournament together came back to the school and they are now barring that school from any participation in any sport ever because of that. That's That's a trend. That's a course of the world. Another is, and many of you know who Kurt Cameron is, but there's, a, there's a, a practice, and it's been going on for a long time. Libraries will have children's story hour. And if you want to know more about that, you can get into all the ugly details of what goes on at some of those. But he decided, you know what, we can't, we can't just submit all these children to that kind of garbage. So he went to a library and scheduled a time when he could come and read a children's book that he had written, I believe and he got all this heat it was in Hendersonville Tennessee the Bible Belt right but he met with great opposition and even the threat of legal action to do that now why do I say that this should not surprise us when we see things like this we live in a world that is under the control of Satan the prince and power of the air as much as God allows him. People are dead in sin. They don't know any better yet. We gasp and we're disgusted when we read the terrible sins committed by Old Testament characters, aren't we? It's just like, how could they do this? Even New Testament characters. And even current characters. How could they do this? How could they not? Humans of all ages, from all backgrounds and cultures, are under the domain of Satan, Paul is telling us. And they're only doing what comes natural. And no thought that it is wrong. But there are two spirits at work in this world, as we well know. And those spirits are not in agreement. The Scripture tells us they are at war. The spirit of this world, which is directed by Satan, and, the God, and God's Holy Spirit, which is the ultimate, most powerful. T.S. Eliot wrote that, quote, most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. Think about it. We want to be important. So people do things to make themselves appear important or to be important. They have control of their lives. No one's going to tell them what to do. But the fact is, they don't even know it, but they're being influenced by Satan. They're being guided and controlled by that spirit. Satan has the world convinced that they are in control of their own lives. That they alone make their own decisions, form their own thoughts, and act on them. And he laughs every time anyone thinks that. Humanity is not a perpetual downward spiral. Every sin perpetuating and feeding the next and the consequences that come. In verse 3, Paul says, among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, deserving God's wrath, even as the rest. It seems so hopeless as we look at the world around us. And it would be, except for the first two words of verse 4. But God, (laughs) there is hope Apart from God, there is no hope. But God who is rich in mercy. It's interesting, We often we spend a little time trying, well, what what does mercy, what's the definition of mercy? Or what's the definition of grace? The word mercy in all its forms appears over 450 times in Scripture, telling us that it must be kind of important for us to understand. But what does it mean? Well, typically we would say mercy is not getting what we justly deserve. There were times in my life as a youngster, I deserved a spanking. I deserved it, and I didn't get it. Maybe that was merciful, maybe it wasn't. I recently heard a story of a missionary many years ago who was in in, a a native tribe in in, uh, Irian Jaya, which is a... uh, an Indonesian island, and they were searching as they translated the scripture to find a word, somehow a phrase, something that would describe mercy. And they could find nothing. And one day they were in a conversation with one of the, the people, the natives there, and all of a sudden they realized this is it. In that culture, the idea of mercy was relaxing the bow. So you think of a bow hunter. Some of you do that. You draw back, and the reason you draw back is you are aiming at a target. Typically, if you're hunting, there is an animal, an unsuspecting animal, and you intend to kill it. But something changes, and you decide, I've done this, you know, a deer in my sights, and I, I just I relax the mow. I have mercy. I decide not to take it. That is the picture in that culture of what mercy is. God relaxing the bow. He had every right to unleash that arrow. But He relaxed the bow. But God who is rich in mercy. Some years ago, a friend of mine that I worked with, with a smirk on his face, he asked me the question Well, what happens to all those who never heard about Jesus? What happens to all those people who died and never heard of Him? Where do they go? My answer then was, and my answer today still is, God, being rich in mercy, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance, cannot and will not judge unfairly. Somehow, in God's great mercy, in the far reaches of our planet, in the dark jungle somewhere, in a dark hut, somehow God reaches those people. I don't know how, but if those verses are true, then He will do that. How He does it has nothing to do with me, unless He tells me to go and tell them. But He will do that somehow, because He is great And rich in mercy. But there is a deception in our day. And I think it's lurking in our shadows, in the shadows. And and we need to understand Satan is constantly changing his tactics. As we become aware of how he works, he figures out a different way. And that brings us to vampire Christianity. How many of you have ever heard that term? vampire christianity one good it's not familiar how many of you have ever heard of the rap artist kb christian rap artist kb no stick your hand okay some of you have so i decided well if i'm going to quote him i probably ought to listen to his music i think i'll just quote him um lord bless him Uh, it's not my thing But in an interview recently, he described, and I don't think he was the one who came up with this idea. I think it was actually a writer, Dallas Willard. But anyway, he recently said in an interview, he said this, quote, people who want Jesus for His blood, but not for His life. That's vampire Christianity. He went on to say that it is a dangerous belief of wanting grace and forgiveness through Jesus' blood and sacrifice on the cross and at the same time, refusing to follow Jesus in life. Hmm. Satan does not mind when we fall into that trap because he knows that if we do, we live defeated lives and we are no threat to his kingdom. There's a scene in the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. The scene is of an atheist who's in the British Museum and he's reading. He often went there to read. And he starts reading something and it, started, it catches his mind and he starts to think. He's an atheist now, so there's something in, that's going on in his mind and he's starting to question, or at least in the direction of questioning, his atheism. And in the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis writes, the screw tape, who is the devil that is tempting, he panics. and he says quote, "Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years work beginning to totter. He had this man convinced for 20 years that his atheism was right, and all of a sudden something he was reading started to make him think about that and screw tape panics. And he goes on to say, if I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. Think of it. At the end of that scene, Screwtape tells Wormwood, his nephew, who he's training to be a tempter, It's funny how these humans picture us putting things into their minds. Our best work is done by keeping things out. Hmm. Crowding our minds and time with things that have little or no eternal value. How much time do we spend every day doing other things than thinking about our Heavenly Father, worshiping Him, learning of Him, praying to Him? We spend... Honestly, probably most of the time, don't we? Those things aren't bad. But we have to be careful. Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. We were dead, and now we are alive. We're alive someday in the future in heaven. Yes, we are alive now. So, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing all right, I guess. No, it should be way different than that. We live, we work, we associate with dead people, dead to the things of God, dead to life in Christ. We preach, we witness, we befriend. we present the gospel in any way possible that people will want to listen. But it is only the Spirit of God that can bring them to life. It's just as the man who is in the museum, he was distracted by screw tape. So that man's thoughts can also be influenced by the Holy Spirit. But how does that happen? When you and I ask the Holy Spirit to do it. Our greatest work is praying people into the kingdom of God. Paul said he didn't use all these fancy slogans and and ways of doing things. He just presented Christ crucified and then let the Holy Spirit take it and do his work that only he can do. Our salvation and the salvation of the world is the gift of God, it's a gift. And we need to be very careful that we're not deceived into just complacency, that we're not vampire Christians. There's a new threat on the horizon. Turn in your hymnals to number 241. The song is, Ere You Left Your Room This Morning, Did You Think to Pray? Let's all stand and let's sing just the very first verse, 241, and then we're going to stop. Marvin, verse 1. as I sang that song to myself this week and I was thinking about this message I'd, I'd like to, to write another verse that explains the kind of the idea we've been talking about as you start your day with purpose think of those who are still searching Lost in darkness, without guidance, hopeless, and in need of mercy. Let us reach out with compassion, spread the love of Christ upon them, show them healing, show redemption, lead them to the cross of freedom. Isn't that powerful? You know who wrote that? You ever heard of Chat GPT? it took them five seconds all I did is I typed in a verse of song about redemption in Christ to the tune of "Ere you left your room this morning five seconds that's what it came up with isn't that incredible isn't that scary Now we're in an age, we don't know if a human came up with it or not. I wish I was in school. (laughs) The fact is, we need to be aware of what's going on around us. Everything that's put into that database, and it is what I think the whole Library of Congress, it's so fast it, it can think, it can't think. It can only put out what is put in. Satan is deceptive. Words matter. Scripture is what God has spoken. Not ChatGPT and not Alexis or whoever you're, you know, play this for me or give me the weather. We don't pray to that. Some children are learning that, I guess. So we need to be aware of the world around us. The world is dead and it's dying. We have been given life. Now let's live like it. Amen? Let's stand. Father, we thank You this morning for the blood of the Lord Jesus, who has redeemed us, who has rescued us from the pit. And we thank You for Your wonderful, precious Holy Spirit that now lives in us and guides us, gives us strength to live faithfully, daily, hourly, every single minute. And Father, as we live in this world, there is much deception out there. We can be deceived. So, Father, protect us. Help us to stay rooted and grounded in Your Word constantly. And everything we hear, everything we see, that it's filtered through Your Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit as He reveals Your Word to us. Lord, go with us. us. Give us strength to live faithfully before You. And may we... I mean, you've said it. The gates of hell shall not prevail. That is a promise. And we can use it for the glory of the kingdom. So Father, go with us today. We thank you for the food that has been prepared. Bless us as we share it together. And may your name be honored and glorified in each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.